Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, hear how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. So if you haven't checked out our back catalogue of great guests, please do that because there's bound to be some authors or screenwriters or video game writers or any other kind of writer (laughs) that you want to hear from. Absolutely. And we've got another great guest, as always, this week. We're chatting with John Ingold, who's a British author of interactive fiction, uh, read video games, and co-founder of Inco, which uh, the day, the game they're probably most well-known for was the big one, was 80 Days. I remember playing that a few years ago. On, on yeah, but they've done, they've done quite a few games that have, that have done well, which is sort of... Uh... Overboard was one that had just come out in the last year that we talk about, yeah. which is a sort of reverse murder mystery, and Heaven's Vault, uh, which was a really ambitious game about an archaeologist and almost like discovering an ancient language and you having to, to learn, learn it during the game. Yeah, yeah it's quite which, interesting. Which is incredible. And he's actually written a book. It's actually two a two volume book on Heaven's Gate. It's a fictional book. Um, but he's chosen to explore that world a bit more now, which is yeah. really interesting. And we chat to him about the differences between writing, you know, normal, and I'm doing air quotes there, normal <laughs> fiction or uh, interactive fiction in, in the game. So even if you're not a gamer, I think yeah. his writing and this type of games that he creates are very much narrative driven. Yeah. So he has a lot of great insights about you know, building a story, structuring a story, structuring a scene. Yeah. And that I think is relevant across any kind of Yeah, and uh, and, and a lot of stuff about, you know, player choice and agency. And when you've got a story with branching paths, how do you plan that? How do you structure that? How do you write a story in a way that maybe feels like it's more open, but you're actually still controlling behind the scenes the the linear thread of the plots? And all that stuff, it's... It, it's it's really really interesting. I think if you're interested in writing or video games at all, then yeah, it'll be a really interesting listen. Yeah, and and on top of that, he was a really great guy to speak. And it's nice guy. It was always nice to <laughs> really good fun uh, episode to record. So uh, we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. And as we mentioned last week, it, the the new edition of the page one writer's notebook is about to be available you can pre-order it now and you've still got until sunday the 12th to get a five pound discount on your page one notebook and uh, they're they would make a great christmas present for <laughs> for the writer in your life even if that writer is you so uh, we'll, we'll play that we'll play that quick advert and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest but for now on with the podcast the blank page To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? 
structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. My normal question when I start these podcasts is, uh, did you always want to be a writer? But in, in your case, um, I suppose it might be slightly different, which is, did did you always have an, a love of interactive storytelling, interactive fiction when you were growing up? So it's a funny thing, actually, because if you had asked, did I always want to be a writer, then I would have answered yes, right? Because my whole childhood, I was writing and I was telling myself I was going to be a writer and I was writing short stories and I was getting annoyed with the books that I saw published in bookshops because I thought, well, this is easy. It must be easy (laughs) to do better than this. And then finding out that it was actually quite hard to do, which is, you know, probably a very familiar story to writers. Um, And in my 20s, you know, I was trying quite hard to be a novelist and like write radio plays and things like that. And I'd kind of given up on computer games as this niche thing that no one was interested in, really. Mm -hmm. And it was quite it was quite by well, it felt like it was by chance that I ended up getting a job in a computer game studio. And then it felt like it was by chance that I ended up writing games and then it felt sort of by chance that I ended up where where I am now the reality is though if I actually look back um when I was seven years old I used to sit in the playground at school telling interactive stories to my friends and they would they would make the choices and I would tell the story and I was always writing puzzle books and I was always writing puzzle books that had a story attached to them and I wrote my first like interactive fiction computer game when I was nine in a notebook before we actually had a computer to program it on so I think the reality is yes I've always wanted to do interactive storytelling I've never been interested in the other kinds of interactive in the other kinds of writing enough to actually do them properly until recently anyway um I think that's the reality of it, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like I've just been trying to write wherever I can and games was the one that happened to work, whereas the other ones didn't. That's that's sort of the narrative I have in my head, even though... I think from the outside, it looks like I've been quite single-minded, actually. Like, yeah, well, d- d- like. d- in sort of preparing for this, it did look like that. Although I, I did see that you have... <laughs> you have um, written some short stories as well for interzone and thing like uh, things like that yeah yeah when i was um when i was working at sony that was my, my job in the in the games industry and 
from the perspective of working in a AAA computer game company, there, I mean, it, it gave me this sense that no one was interested in interactive fiction at all, that there was no market for it, that games were this enormous, extremely expensive um, market to be working in. I couldn't even convince them to let me write the games that I was working on day to day. They wanted to hire writers to do that. So I thought, well, okay, forget that. I'll, I'll be a science fiction writer. That's what I'll do. So I think that at that time I was focused on writing short science fiction stories to sell them to science fiction markets to eventually you know get myself an agent and become a science fiction author and that was that was the plan it didn't get very far (laughs) but you know that was what I was definitely trying to do at that time I mean it definitely Um, sounds like the but I think I've just oh sorry I was gonna say that it it it, it sounds to me definitely that the you had a love for writing but it was that kind of interactivity that you really like the, that was the kind of draw for you the most. I, I take it you a fan of like the fighting fantasy, Steve Steve Jackson books as a kid. Was that a choose yeah, adventure yeah, type when, things? Yeah, when I was a kid, I read a, a lot of the various choose your own adventures, and you know, I had opinions about them as well, which was kind of um, which is a clue that I actually cared about what was going on. In that, like, I think even age ten, I was able to say, well, I don't really like Ian Livingstone's fighting fantasy books because they tend to be more combat focused, but I prefer mm-hmm. Steve Jackson's ones because they're more mechanically interesting. <laughs> like this sort of distinction that I think a lot of people, when they're reading a choose your own adventure, they don't really stop to think about that stuff very much because <laughs> they're just plowing forward. Yeah. Um, I actually I have a maths degree, so I think I've always been cursed with a kind of a brain that likes to look for patterns and structure. Um, but then I don't know, because I sometimes think that normal writing is interactive anyway, because as a writer, what you're doing is you're setting up assumptions and ideas and traps for your audience to fall into. You're teasing them. You're trying to misdirect them and mislead them and to get them to assume things or believe things or misunderstand things so that you can pull the rug out from under their feet later or, or twist something around. And like, although structurally, the interactive stuff that I write at the moment, you know, it branches and it's got redundant content and you might see this bit rather than that bit. I think when it works, it's applying a lot of the same tools and techniques that a playwright uses to make a compelling play. It's just, just happens to have a different structure to the way that the words are delivered. Actually. I I don't really think of it as this separate kind of writing. It's just, it's just another technical kind of writing but all writing is technical all writing is 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 locked into its medium like you know you can't be a prose writer and then suddenly become a good poet like without learning poetry which is a whole thing um and anyone who underestimates poetry is a bad poet kind of by definition (laughs) and i think similarly with interactive stuff like you can't just write interactive fiction and expect it to work but at the same time that doesn't mean that it isn't just another kind of writing i think Mm -hmm. it is actually but but i'm sort of jumping ahead in what i was going to ask Mm. here but when you you know comparing the two things obviously if a prose writer is writing a book they have a beginning middle and end maybe not at the start of their process but by the end of it they you know they've got this structure that they have but in interactive fiction like the stuff that you do you have to you must have to be more um uh, free or or anticipate more that there could be different you know the story could go in different directions and things like that which strikes me as a more difficult thing to to organize Um, i mean i don't 
think I agree that it's more difficult. I think it's different. Mm-hmm. So, um, so like when, say you're writing a murder mystery, right? And your detective character is going to outwit a suspect into admitting something. And so for you, the writer, you sit down and you write as the detective um, a series of leading questions, which are going to box the character in until they're forced to make a confession and there's no way out. And every time you come back to the detective, you have to write the best line to push that character to where the scene needs them to be, right? But you still got lots of choices as to how you do that. And you might write it this way and find that it doesn't work that well or write it this way and find it doesn't work that well. Or you might find that actually you just write it one way, but there could have been lots of other ways to do it. But ultimately, you're still forcing this scene to happen. Well, when you're writing interactive fiction, it's not often the case that you don't have a a beginning or an end to the scene that you're working on. Um, It's really quite common that you do, actually. It's just that you set up the beginning, you know what the end is, and then you're creating all of the different ways that you're going to force the play around to whatever you want them to get to or or have them force another character to get where you want to. So, so So it's a bit like the process of writing a scene for the, the murder mystery. It's only in the murder mystery example, you have to pick the best one and commit to it. Whereas I don't have to pick the best one. I just put them all down. Yeah. And like I sort of make sure that they all funnel in and they all have a sense of momentum. Um, and in a way that's often easier because it means that, so I have to come up with perhaps more content or I have to make sure that the content works in different orders, which can be fussy, right? But you know, computers are smart. They can track things. That's not difficult. It's just fussy. Um, but the flip side is I don't necessarily have to editorialize that much. I don't have to find the best version of this scene, which can be really hard and stressful because that's up to the player, actually. And the player kind of forgives you if it if it isn't the absolute best version. The fact that they're there in it, making it happen mm-hmm. kind of compensates for that. So they don't really think, oh, well, that could have been better. They tend to think, oh, that worked. Yeah, well, I I just think because quite often when people first come to talking about interactive fiction, they think, oh, you make choices and the story just goes blah and it just goes, you know, all over the place like an explosion and it could end up anywhere. And if you tell a story like that, it's going to be a very bad story. So (laughs) you have to make sure that you you, you kind of don't view it that way, because it, it really is about creating a space in which what you want to happen will happen. And that doesn't mean you can't have multiple outcomes from a scene because you can it's just that that's kind of that's the level above right your, your basic level of interactive fiction is tricking the player into doing what you want them to yeah. and then your slightly better level is letting them have an actual bit of freedom which you then on a sort of slightly higher level forced to be the thing that you wanted it to be anyway in the first place <laughs> so, yeah. It, it, like yeah it makes me think of a lot of the telltale games that i played when they were quite big a few a few years back. And and I remember, you know, you start playing The Walking Dead or whatever, and it felt like you had all these choices and I could do this or I could do that or I could choose, I could make these big decisions where I could, someone could live or die or I could chop off an arm or not, et cetera. And it felt like a really difficult choice. And then sometimes I would get that feeling where I got to the end of a scene or maybe it didn't, didn't actually matter what one I picked because at the end of the day, I was coming back to that same point again and, and so is it i mean is it important to try and you know you want to create that feeling that you've got all these options and you do have player choice and agency but you without feeling like you're being railroaded into an inevitable ending like you are having yeah. some kind of 
input on the outcome almost. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's important to get away from that in get away from thinking about that in a kind of uh, mechanical, like economical sense. Sometimes you talk to players and they're like, I want to know exactly what numbers are being affected by the decisions that i'm making so i can optimize and track my statistics through the scene and i hate that because it's got yeah. nothing to do with storytelling or characters if yeah. if your players are focusing on the the economics of the scene they're not they're not actually paying attention to the story that you're telling so you're kind of wasting your time or, or it seems that way to me um so what you're really saying in the telltale example because i think telltale you know they made a lot of games and some of them worked well and some of them worked less well and some of their scenes were really compelling and some of their scenes were quite obviously forcing you in a direction yeah and i think what that what that demonstrates what that range demonstrates is that it's possible to write a scene which feels contrived and it's possible to write a scene which doesn't feel contrived and that's a question of skill but again that's exactly the same as any other writing right you know you, we've all seen the scene in the play in which it's pretty clear that this character needs to decide to go on an epic adventure but they don't want to and maybe they get convinced by some incredibly turbulent emotional force or maybe they just change their mind halfway through and go off and do it anyway and we kind of go oh, really <laughs> is that the best you could do and like um you know that kind of that's that's not a flaw of the medium that's just like if you want to say if you want to tell a story that's really good you need to be able to get your characters to do what they need to do but you need to make it look like they're doing it for themselves and it's not the the hand of the author the god hand forcing them Mm. into doing it and that's the whole job of a storyteller right is to make it look like the story is happening in real time when actually honestly it really isn't um and i think the interactive context again is just another way of convincing people that that this is happening now right a really compelling oral storyteller will make you believe that it's happening now because of the tone of their voice and the way that they lean forward and the way that they bring you into the story well an interactive storyteller does that by saying have a choice oh yeah i'm going to use that choice have a choice i'm going to use that choice and then by the end of the scene having you go do you see if you hadn't have done those things who knows what would have happened yeah and that's it's not a trick but it it kind of is a trick it but it's but we want to believe in it because we exactly. want to believe in stories. That's yeah, the joy yeah. of it. That's the wonder so, for me is that moment you think, God, if I'd done that, what would have happened? And that, and yeah. not knowing or wondering if it would have been a totally different outcome. And yeah. that, that for me is the right. Really exactly. well. But then, then the really important thing is you have to make sure that what's happening is so exciting and compelling that the player doesn't quit reload and then run the scene again, <laughs> yeah, because that's totally. the worst yeah, thing yeah, they yeah, can yeah, do. Yeah. They've got to, they've got to say, I it could have gone anywhere, but I need to know what happens next. Well, often and they end up like David Cage games really go hard. back and you see like a grid, like a chart and you can go back on a flow chart and you can go back and see, here's all the branching pathways. And it does kind of, I guess in some ways it's, it's great because it means you can go back and you can you can see everything, but it does maybe take the magic away a little bit of like, it, it makes Honestly, it less organic I, and makes it more kind of I hate that stuff. I really hate it. It's, it just feels like you've been to see a magic show and then they rotate mm-hmm. the set around so you can see yeah. the wires. I, like it always strikes me as just a massive lack of confidence on the part of the game maker because like if you've done your job, the audience is happy like you don't need to convince them or like or justify yourself you just walk away and take your bow you know um so something we try to do in all of our games is is to try and make sure that people are feel secure that their choice is mattering and that there is branching and that they are seeing things differently and there are various strategies we use for that but we always try to force people forwards and we never show story maps and we never show story graphs and 
um, yeah, we try to be quite rigorous about training the player into this idea of, look, just start playing, enjoy yourself, get to an end. And then if you want to play again, play differently. Like don't, don't do some weird comparison analysis thing. And some players always will do, right? Because some players are just fascinated by seeing how the wires and mechanics work and that's fine, you know, whatever. But I don't write for those people because I don't entirely understand them. (laughs) They can do what they want to do. And if they're happy, then then I'm happy. But but like what I really want to do is just create something that's just gripping, and and the the, the medium should fall away really if you're doing it well. Well, I, yeah, I think I, I think, the, I think have, but that's the goal. I think the base games are definitely the ones that you know. If if Tarek and I have both played the same game, but at the end of it, you can say, oh, I you know this is what happened to my character through it, and it's a different. You know, you may have ended up at the same place at the end, but your path is entirely different. And personally, I don't have much. You know, if, if it's been a satisfying story, then I'm happy with that. And then, okay, I could have gone a different path, but I don't really have much desire to go back and and revisit it again and again and again. Try trying to get every single um, variation that is that is possible because the story itself has been compelling in its telling. So I, th- I think that's the most important thing yeah yeah yeah. i mean i think though you know it it opens up interesting avenues to explore so like we've made quite a lot of our games are built to be replayable to to be enjoyable on a replay and they use different strategies to to do that but i think it's interesting that question of how do you how do you make a replay feel like it's not mostly the same stuff again and and not a retread how do you how do you give it value and give it give it weight and we tend to do that and it it, it's good it's good from a sales point of view as well because if you can say that something's repayable people feel more confident about playing it because everyone otherwise thinks well it's a narrative game i'll finish it and then it'll stop Mm -hmm. and that's not okay um because we have this weird idea that games should last forever um that it's important for us to finish games because we're bored of them, not because we finished them, which is <laughs> yeah. just unlike any other. It's like this, this film will go on for hours and hours and hours until you quit. <laughs> that's the end of the film. That doesn't, what? That's a stupid model. But um, for some reason, that's how we feel about games. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, yeah, as, as you were saying that, obviously I, I thinking of, of 80 days, uh, which obviously mm. um, you guys did I, that is a game that I have gone back because it is just you know it was just so enjoyable going through the story and then saying I'll, I'll try a different route this time and see what happens that way so yeah the, I suppose it depends on the it depends on the game whether or not you want to yeah want to exactly I mean they because the the I think the designs are for different structures so like 80 days is, is a right it uses a trick for its replay in that you you go on your adventure around the world and hopefully you you think maybe oh what what might have happened in that city where this this exciting thing happened in this city but what might have happened i'll go back and i'll i'll find out what might have happened but then you get distracted by something else along the way because it takes quite a long time to get to this city and you end up wandering off somewhere completely and that sense of of getting distracted and wandering off and finding something else is thematically the heart of the whole game. So what we try to do is we try to turn replay into another reflection of the theme of, look, you're on this 80 day journey. Stop getting distracted. Where have you gone? What, what? <laughs> and like, that's the whole theme of the game is, yeah. is you're supposed to be going forwards, but you keep actually just looking at the scenery too much. And that like that, 
you know, it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. And it, the, the whole joke of 80 days is that you're really supposed to be doing this 80 day bet, but actually if you ignore the bet, you have a much nicer time. And that's kind of, and that kind of builds, and that builds into the replay and that makes the replay work, I think. Um, which is interesting because it's, it's not, it's not the, it's not what game players normally replay for. They replay to analyze and deconstruct. Mm. And actually it's offering replay to, to go off and find something else completely different. I like, I think that, that's quite joyous. I quite like that. Um, and that was quite deliberate. And when you, when you write these games, you know, with all these kind of branching paths and alternate uh, choices and options and stuff in, in your head, even, or do you ever have like a, here's a definitive through line. Here's the, start and finish story and then i'm gonna i'm gonna write other options for it or do you is it literally a case of like of like uh, here's i, I don't I, I don't know where it where it'll go i don't really have a preference of where it ends or where it goes it's just i'm just writing all these options and i'm putting them all out there and i don't there's no right mm. path in my mind so like you know in reality what we do when we're writing it is we will write a through line first because it's easier to write a spine and then to start saying well how can we vary that you know okay this is the spine but at this point actually i'm quite interested by this thing over here so that's a that seems like a place where the player might want to branch so let's branch um and so you 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 start off long and then you get wider and wider and wider so i'm waving my hands around a lot which isn't very helpful (laughs) (laughs) kind of yeah if you start off with something thin and it gets um because that's the best way to kind of to to make sure that the content that you're adding is in a place where the player wants it to be you say well where are they looking around well let's give them something to see when they look around um but in terms of is there a canonical route and the other ones are kind of fake rubbish versions of that route? no obviously (laughs) not like um and that's not the model that one that you have in your head because if you a lot of people start i think writing interactive fiction with that model of like this is my scene and then i'll make it interactive but it's very difficult to do that in a way that isn't it isn't obvious what you've done so i find it much more useful to think about it as a space like a possibility space um so if you take 80 days from the top level, right, from the high level, you're, you're going from London to London around the world. And the possibility space is all the cities and all the journeys that we've chosen to include in this game. And I, as the writer, don't care which ones you go to or even which order you go to them in. So long as they're well distributed, there's an interesting collection of them. They're never too, there's never too thin. There's never too few. You can't get stuck, like things like that. So long as there's a space for you to explore, then all I have to do is make sure that I put something in all of that space for you to find. And then the journey that you get by connecting those things together is that's kind of your job as the player. It's not my job. I set up the art gallery, but you are the person who looks at painting after painting after painting after painting and and constructs some kind of narrative and interrelationship between them. And we might do work to to help with that you know it's often very powerful to meet a character in this location and then have them reappear in a later location and some players will miss it and some players won't but those who find that connection will really relish it because Mm -hmm. they'll go oh you know that my, my past came back to to be part of my future and that's great but that's not the main way to do it the main way to do it is we just set up a series of attractive things to look at and then ask you to walk through them and it's much more like designing an art gallery or or probably like a punch drunk kind of theatrical thing like it's a space and your movement through it is up to you because if you think about it that way then 
you're kind of not you're not making the player into the last thought that you're having in the creative process. The player's right there is kind of the player is the momentum through this narrative world or through this story or through this game. And you have to respect that at all times. Um, and hopefully that means that the player is always active and taking interesting choices and responding to what's actually there in real ways. And then you can play off that. Um, it, it's, it sounds, it's that quite sense. like um, sort of the approach that, that you're told to take as a sort of a games master in a tabletop role-playing game or something, which is don't, don't have a fixed story, have have scenes, have choices, and then let the players decide what path they're taking through it. It's the same kind of idea, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, um, you know, often we talk about, we used to talk a lot about encounters, which I think mm -hmm. is the word that they use in, in tabletop, or at least they used to. Though these days I quite often think about provocations, actually. Like what you just want to give is the player a provocation, and then they can start reacting to that provocation mm -hmm. in various ways. And that story. And then that, that does something useful. And um, the less random those provocations are, the more your thing feels like a coherent story, but that isn't always what you want. Sometimes you want it to be eclectic. Yeah. Um, how do you build? Um, how do you build narrative up in terms? If, if if your structure is kind of in that sense of you know here's everything and um, you pick your path through it, you know does that does that make it harder to do stuff like foreshadowing or calling back to stuff because you don't necessarily know what the player is going to go and see or what the player has seen perhaps and you know is it is it is it harder or is it possible even to do stuff like? hear stuff of something that might happen or 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 a, or a or a tease of what might happen ahead or to build that kind of that narrative structure where you feel you're overcoming something that was specific to you or is it a case of just a bunch of random stuff and you might have a feeling like that or it might just be a random story so i think the reality is somewhere in between um like it's very hard to write a tight narrative it's very hard to write something where every setup is paid off um kind of in a clever and, and nice way like you might want in a you know in a really good thriller or something like that um because yeah players might entirely miss the setup and hit the payoff they might miss the payoff having hit the setup um, a very unlucky player might miss everything <laughs> and wonder what the point of this game was um you know all of these things are, are possible but I guess what we try to think about is like what's the experience how interesting is the experience of the average player um, the player who's not trying to break the game by doing the stupidest thing the whole time because you get those and the not player who is kind of knows exactly what to do the whole time is optimizing the game. Um, but just the average player who's responding to things in a reasonable way. Um, and what you try to do is give them lots of opportunities for setup and lots of opportunities for payoff and hope that they'll run into some of them. And if you are smart, you make your setups look like they're not setups so that if it doesn't pay off, the audience doesn't feel too cheated. Okay. And yeah. hopefully you make your payoffs perhaps have multiple setups. So, you know, if you've got a nice big moment in the end that you really want to include, there's no reason it has to have one particular way of getting to that moment. You can have seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 15. You can have the player hit uh, something which will set up an end moment which then silently turns off all the other ways they could have done it so that it feels unique to them like um, okay that's cool there's nothing really stopping 
there's basically nothing stopping the complexity of the story management process beyond your ability to do the do, do the code um so one thing we try to do is we try not to actually plan it too closely like if you try and make a flow chart you can get into a real mess of like oh but this before that and this before and then if you move a scene oh no this is all backwards so what we tend to do is we tend to just make sure that every bit of the plot is defended by the conditions that it needs to be true on its own so that's quite a weird idea but what i mean is essentially if every bit of plot is on an index card and the index card says at the top of it only use this if this is true and this isn't true and then it doesn't matter if they get out of order it doesn't matter if they get dropped on the floor and shuffled you never do anything unless it makes sense to do it and and then you do it and then you've committed to it and then it's part of the narrative and so a game like heaven's vault which is our kind of most ambitious really it's like a 20 hour um 3d adventure it's got two characters with constant memories who are constantly discussing and developing their understanding of the world and you can do all the scenes in any order and the way that that works is every single thing that they can say is based on do they know this do they not know this are they in a gap between knowing that and not knowing that in which case they can plausibly talk about it and develop their knowledge on that there's 10,000 lines of dialogue. They all work like that. So as you play the game, stuff gets said, things get developed. And by the end of it, the characters have been on this intellectual journey and come out with lots of theories about stuff. And I don't know what order you're going to see the dialogue in that game as the writer. But I also don't care because I've just made sure that every dialogue works. Yeah. So the totality of the dialogue works. And that's it. And you might lose some pacing and it's not necessarily tight in the way that like a good play is tight, but because it's player directed, you sort of trade that you trade off the tightness for that sense of ownership and control, um, which is interesting. And as a writer in, in something like Heaven's Bolt, then um, what is the, you know, what is the actual process of, you writing this these this dialogue or whatever and the scenes when it actually comes to putting it together with the actual game you know them are there parts mm-hmm. where you find that what's written doesn't work or or you know the game doesn't slot together as neatly as you thought how, how does that process work i mean generally you're um generally you you build some kind of system for delivering the content right so in heaven's vault there are objects in the world that you can go up to and interact with and then there's conversation which is kind of fed through the whole time and you can access it whenever you want and that's just the game systems right having done that you write a bunch of content to put into those systems and then you play the game and you see what happens and usually there'll be far too much conversation and then they'll run out of things to talk about and then there's a big long silent patch and then they go up to an object in the world and then they have a really on the nose conversation about it and you go okay this is really awkward this all feels really amateurish how can we make this better oh i need to slow this down i need to extend that i need to give them opportunities to to be confused about what this thing in the world is so that they can resolve that later and um i tend to i tend to redraft a lot in a kind of i'm actually playing the game with as much of a player mindset as I can and looking for where's the point where the player would go now nah, this is rubbish and then how can I do how can I do better <laughs> um 
But again, I'm not sure that that's actually different from normal writing, because I think if I'm writing prose, when I, what I do is I write it as fast as I can, and then I read it, and I try to read it with a reader's mindset and go, oh, what? I don't understand this. That makes no sense at all. Oh, okay, I need to do something here. And then I go back into my writer's mindset and say, well, what is it? need to do it like how can I fix this like I've talked to my I've talked to my reader friend who's told me that there's a problem here now I need to analyze and solve that so I I think that flipping between kind of being a craftsman and being an audience member is actually probably it's probably just painting and standing back to look at the canvas isn't it Mm -hmm. like it's probably that same process Um, that that's a good time to bring up obviously that the the books the the hymns fault because um, you've you've taken the game and and turned it into a novel as well. Now, how? Yeah, how, first of all, what made you want to do that with that game in particular? And secondly, was the process in actually writing it different? So, um, I mean, I I think the reason that I wanted to write that game was that. Um, the world and the it sounds like such a simpering answer but the world and the character of that game i really really like um we spent a long time trying to kind of build a build a science fiction setting that didn't feel generic and didn't feel like um corny or cheesy or derivative and it was for this game which is about archaeology right so we had to know the history of this world and it had to make sense because the player was going to reason about it as part of the gameplay and do logic on this thing that had to really hold together and i i kind of quite stubbornly wanted to make a world which had um masses of internal coherency so like it's a sci-fi world but there's really only two bits of technology but they, they appear in lots of different ways and get reused and reused over time. Because I think, oh, that's interesting. As opposed to like Star Trek, where they just have 53 million different yeah. kinds of technology and they just make another one up next week. <laughs> different style of type. So, but what that meant was we built this thing which had this incredible internal coherency and um, people played the game and they enjoyed it. And there are groups of communities, uh, there are uh, game communities still talking about and discussing and analysing the world of that game. So it never really died for me and it's still very much in my head. So I think I just wanted to play in that world again. I wanted to be in that world again. And I think that's what irritated me enough that I was able to actually write a novel based on it. Like I thought about a novel based on 80 days. I could do something with Meg on that, with Megna who wrote it, um, who, who did the lead writing on that. But that world's so eclectic that actually, how would you pick a novel for that? Whereas Heaven's Well, everything, I, I know what I want to say and I know what I want to communicate with it. Um, and actually there's a lot of themes in there that I think are relevant and important about kind of how we how we deal with the decisions that the past has forced upon us. Like, uh, I think that's very relevant in the days of climate change. Like, how do we deal with um, the fact that we're living through the consequences of decisions taken by people 50, 100 years ago who really weren't thinking about us? Um, do we just keep doing it? Like, what do we do about that? And that kind of relevance of the past and the future feels very um, important right now. So I, I guess I was quite motivated by all of that to write it. In terms of actually writing it, though, it was mostly by accident. I had just finished another game um, which was very procedural and code heavy and systematic and I just felt like doing something really different so I thought I'd do some prose writing just to kind of as a break 
um, and I didn't know what to write. So I thought, well, I'll write some heaven stuff because that's easy, right? I just know that. Um, so I started writing it and I just enjoyed myself so much that it turned out to be um, a 180,000 word novel, <laughs> which kind of just, sort of, it just kept going really. Um, but it was, it was just, it was just fun, really. It was just so much fun to write in such an enjoyable world. And I like the characters and after a while, it became really interesting as well um, from a kind of plotting point of view, because to, to start with, I was kind of replicating what happens in the game. But obviously, at some point, you you start to answer questions about, well, well, what's the correct route through the scenes of the game? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the correct plot? And the more that you analyze that, the more you start to realize that, um, that in a game, the plot doesn't need to be tight. It's actually like at any moment, the plot can just stop. And then you rely on the player to just wander around and pick up the next thread yeah. for you. Um, if you, but if you do that in a movie, if you do that in a book, it feels very, very broken. That you know, suddenly the character just goes, "Oh well, all my crises have been resolved. I'm just going to walk down the street until I encounter somebody interesting who'll <laughs> give me something to do for the next few chapters." Like you really can are not allowed to do that. Um, and it was really interesting to see that actually, once you translate. When you take away the player's momentum driving the game, you only have the protagonist's momentum. And actually, they, I, I don't want to insult my own game, but like her momentum is patchy in the game. <laughs> like there are points where she really has some, and there are points where she really doesn't actually. So I kind of got a bit fascinated by this idea of, well, is there a way of generating enough momentum? on the character to propel her through all of the scenes that the game had like is there a canonical plot that works in the tight novelistic filmic sense like is it actually possible um and once i had that once i had that idea I, that was too annoying to not not allow the answer to be yes the answer had to be yes and i had to find it so at that point i was really trying to find how do i manage to get everything that's in the game into this book in a way that it just it it works and it has that kind of roller coaster running down a mountain feeling that a, a plot especially a kind of detective type plot which is really what it is um should have and i think it did and i was very happy with that um, and that kind of was that was really the thing that got me through it, actually, was just the refusal to let that not be a solvable problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. And what's but the... it was really interesting because, yeah. Oh, sorry, no, I was going to ask, what's the, um, when you came to actually write the book, um, mm. obviously it was, a, I'm presuming, a very, very different writing environment than when you've been working on the game, you know, more solitary, I'm assuming, um, more in your own head, perhaps, and having a team of writers to bounce ideas over, chat things through, you know, was it, was that something that you quite liked or do you prefer working in a larger group environment? It's funny, actually. I, I mean, we don't really work in a very large group of writers at Inkle generally. So um, I was the only writer on Heaven's Vault on the game. Um, and for most of our games, I've been either on my own or with one other person. Obviously, there's a team, though. So, like, a lot of the world of Heaven's Vault was inspired by the art team or just by, like, you know, the developers might yeah. sort of say, oh, well, I'm kind of interested in this in sci-fi. And you go, all right, tell me about that. Oh, that's interesting. And okay. everyone has a stake and everyone has a voice because it was you know, a, a team effort. Um, but I think there's, there's pros and cons to that, 
right? Because sometimes it's really great to have outside ideas and inspiration. And sometimes it's just irritating because you're trying to solve a problem or you've already got enough material actually. And there's someone <laughs> saying, no, we really, really need to have some more animals at this point. And you're like, well, don't, no, that's got, that's just nothing to do with what I'm doing over here. Um, so I can't say I minded it particularly. So it felt like I had all the benefits of having had the team input and the collaboration and all the kind of energy from building the game a couple of years ago. And it all had a lot of chance to sink down and settle. Um, and then everyone just left me alone so I could just get on with it. And that was actually, that was quite nice. Actually, I quite liked it. And um, do you have to like pitch that when you, when you, when you thought, I, I want to write, I want to write this book or turn this prose I'm writing, I want to turn it into a book. Is, do, you have to, do you have to pitch that? Do you have to get like a permission or is that, do you know, in terms of like finding a, publisher etc like how do you what's the practical stage of going on getting or being able to turn so it into I, an actual book i um I, I kind of i'm not very good at getting permission to make things in general like inkle is uh is my company I, I co-founded it with a friend and pretty much the reason why I agreed to co-found a company because I didn't wasn't really have any interest in co-founding a company was that I'd spent my twenties trying to get novels published and failing and trying to get radio plays made and failing. And I eventually realized that if no one else was going to publish me, I was going to have to publish myself. So, um, you know, I often complain that while I, I do appear to be a professional writer at this point, I only got to be a professional writer by inventing my own industry and my own company <laughs> and my own genre and then publishing myself to write in it. Which like, seems like overkill, really. It's a bit like saying you want to be a musician and the first thing you have to do is invent a new musical instrument. I mean, that's just, it's a bit ridiculous. Um, but then, uh, so I came to write the novel and no, I, I didn't pitch it to anyone. I just started doing it in the evenings for fun. It was a lockdown and like, we were, everyone was staying up late and the kids were sleeping in in the morning so it didn't matter how when I went to bed so I just wrote things in the evening to, to cool down really and have a bit of time to myself um and then as I kind of got towards the end of the end of it of finishing it I still hadn't actually told my co-founder of Inkle the co-owner of Inkle Joe that I'd done this thing and I was kind of slowly just admitting that I might have spent quite a long time recently <laughs> just writing this novel which sort of using the IP that he actually co-owns because he co-owns the company <laughs> and Joe's very cool about this kind of thing so he was like okay right yeah all right sure um but you know I like I don't have a publisher for it I don't have an agent um you know I'm a professional writer without an agent for 10 years now which has got to be embarrassing surely and um we've we've self-published the book to fans of the game like selling it directly which uh is going very well actually um we broke the payment website today so we've had a hell of a time oh. trying to fix that <laughs> like we, it, we've actually sold some copies which is which is kind of amazing um but I would still quite like to actually publish it. I kind of have this idea that maybe I can pitch it to an agent afterwards. Um, and I don't know whether an agent or a publisher will want to take a book that's been self-published within a, within a network or, or not. I have no idea. If it's a good book, I hope it will. Um, but it kind of struck me that I could, having written this thing, I could spend you know, half a year, a year, sending it around agents and publishers and trying to get that break. Um, but I've never managed to do that before. And every time I've ever tried to do it, I've always just ended up giving up and doing it myself. So I might as well just give up and do it myself. And I have done. And I feel quite good about that right now. Um, and like, 
if the book manages to get out of its niche, if it manages to be seen by anyone who's never been heard, never heard of the game or never heard of Inkle, that would be really great. Um, I don't suppose I'm going to get a Nebula award for a book that's self-published that doesn't have an ISBN. So I'll have to live with that. Fair enough. But um, I don't know. It, uh, I don't know. I, I'm really trying to convince myself that I haven't written a fairly good book and then thrown it away. Um, but then I think as writers, we have to we have to just live with the fact that we throw away a lot of the stuff we write. So yeah. <laughs> like, we don't really get to choose that. So I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm not a very good strategist. I prefer to just I prefer to just make things and throw them out there. Fair enough. And has it has it? You know, is there? If this is a success, which it seems to be at least in the in the niche that that uh, you're selling it in, would you want to write more prose? That's a really difficult question, actually, because I'm still so close to having finished that project that mm. I'm still very much in the no, never again stage, yeah. which is just a natural part of the of the burnout that comes after a project, right? Um, in general, I really enjoyed writing it, like up until the last month of kind of final polish which was pretty hellish and went on and on and on and I felt like it was never going to quite be good enough yeah. but um up until then I really enjoyed it so yeah I, I probably will write more prose if I can find if I can find a reason to do it I think ultimately the thing that got me through this was the sense that there definitely was a market for it like I was pretty confident that there were some people who would want to read a heaven's novel and whether I find them through publishers or through selling it ourselves or whatever it is, but there are definitely some people out there who want that. And if I was to write something else, I'd want to feel really confident that I knew that there was someone who wanted to read it. Cause I think that's the thing that's changed for me from when I was writing in my twenties, when I was trying, trying to be a writer is that I've seen some projects that I've written be completely ignored and some projects that I've written been really taken into people's hearts. And I prefer the second kind. <laughs> and I'd really like to spend my time doing the second kind <laughs> as much as possible. Actually. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a it's, surprise. It's, I guess what I'm just slowly discovering is that I maybe actually get to choose that much more than I thought I got to choose yeah. it. Like, I mean, I've got a bit of platform now and I've got a bit of power. Um, and so I want to use that to not waste my time as much as possible and it's hard to know how to do that exactly but that does feel like a goal now in quite a real way it's partly just because like you know i've run a business and i've got small children like time is really precious now in yeah. a way that it wasn't when i was 20 but and and Inkle brought out um overboard yes. during lockdown as well were, were you involved in that directly yeah i wrote that ah you wrote that excellent yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, wrote, I wrote i wrote and designed that yeah that was I mean, certainly the way it was it was reported when it came out was that it was sort of a a, a project on a whim that that you just yeah. decided to put out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I forget exactly what the timeline was. I started writing the Heaven's Vault novel in maybe October of last year, and I was writing that for a couple of months in the evening, and then we got to January. And I'd just finished what, what's now the, the first book of Heaven's Vault, where there's a kind of cliffhanger. And I thought, oh, I don't really know if I know what happens next or not. I'm not really sure if I know. And I was bored and I kind of got stuck and stumped on it. And 
started thinking about work again like actual proper work and then we we asked us and it was quite miserable time and obviously everyone was pretty pretty down in january it was winter and you know there was that other lockdown which we just had for the fun of it after everyone died at christmas and like just it was just pretty disastrous times um and so in the company we asked ourselves this question of well okay if we were to just make something and put it out there just for fun just for sheer fun what's the most fun we could have making a project and we thought well It'll be fun if it's a great idea and it's really simple to make and it doesn't cost very much. So we don't need to be scared about it. And let's see if we can make it in a month. And it didn't take a month, but it almost took a month. And we had this idea that of a, a murder mystery where you're the murderer and the job is to, to cover up your murder. And we just liked the idea so much. And it was so much fun to write. So we just we just started writing it and enjoyed ourselves so much that we ended up making a game that we were quite proud of, actually. And I think it's one of our better games, um, even yeah, though great. we did make oh. it very quickly. And then Overboard, oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, and then Overboard shipped in June and got quite a nice bit of hubbub and felt good. And then I spent about a week afterwards thinking, oh, I'm bored of games now. I can't make any other games ever again. What should I do? Oh, I've got this novel to write. And so then I went back and finished <laughs> <laughs> um I've been successfully leapfrogging between those two things. It's quite nice having those two opposing uh, things because you're kind of using different parts of your brain almost, aren't you? You're kind of flexing different muscles and it's a bit of, you, when you burn out yeah, on one, definitely, you go to the other definitely. and recharge and stuff. And it's quite nice. Yeah, because I, I find that I, the interactive stuff uses my kind of technical, I said I had a maths degree, my kind of mathematician brain quite a lot. But I find that my mathematician brain and my writing brain can't coexist at all so if i'm designing something and i'm writing words to fit into a design the words are terrible and if i'm writing just words then i can't seem to get them to function properly so i have to kind of divide my time between these two two versions of myself um yeah so so overboard was actually quite a written project but it, it had quite a lot of technical stuff in it as well so it was nice to go back to heaven's vault which was just dialogue speech pure writing yeah 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 pure writing exactly nice and um, what what's next for you or for income? So we are still underway on our Highland game project. So it's a game about the Scottish Highlands, um, which we've been working on for quite a long time, actually. It's more Joe's thing. Joe's been working on the mechanics and the art style and the animation style of it. And we've released a little bit of that onto the internet and it's people seem to quite like it. Um, there is a narrative component to it as well, which is what I'm supposed to have been doing for the last year. But I am doing, <laughs> honestly, promise. <laughs> um, I keep getting distracted. Um, but yeah, so I'll be working on that now and kind of uh, finishing that up as fast as possible, really, because I think it's it's, it's been long enough now. We, we should we should pull that one together, um, which is an interesting game and it's got some quite interesting challenges like you know my favorite thing in writing is dialogue i like interactive dialogue i like dialogue in prose i like characters i like dialogue but a game set in the highland has remarkably few people in it because there's just not that many people in the highlands and that's a real challenge that's a source of problem for me um that kind of thing so there's there's still definitely questions to answer but at the same time we never really seem to know what we're doing until we're doing it so i can't guarantee that we won't be working on something else in january for the fun of it because we did that last january and it went quite well actually <laughs> yeah. um and like a lot of it is just responding to changing circumstances like uh joe has very small children i have very small children that's a very real part of our daily lives and 
sometimes a project needs to change we just do something else because it fits better with what what we're all up to um in the rest of our lives hmm. so I, I suspect there'll be another overboard sized project coming along at some point just because we enjoyed that so much and it was so good for just slotting in and making sure we we get something made but we don't don't get too precious about it um but otherwise i don't know i don't know see nice. what happens excellent what was the last game that you played i've barely played anything all year i think i've been busy but the last game i played was with my kids we played the unentitled uh goose game oh, oh right yeah. my kids are five and eight fun, and they absolutely loved it <laughs> and they were just bouncing off the sofas in, in just delight and fear and excitement at it and then occasionally because it's really quite a hard game yeah, see, really I, got, I got stuck like, in some of those puzzles for a long like i've not finished i played it for an hour or so and there was one bit i was like yeah well you it, do that without getting seen and it was impossible it's really it, it's quite fussy i think it, it it definitely falls into the slight trap of being a game that's clearly made for kids that's actually unplayable by kids <laughs> um a little bit like uh, Little Big Planet, which I tried to play Little mm. Big Planet with my five-year-old. And like, actually, by level three, the jumps are, <laughs> you can't do them. <laughs> I, mean, I can barely do them. <laughs> so I kind of think, who is this for? But um, yeah, but we really, we, we basically really, really enjoyed the Goose game. And it has, it is worth finishing because it's got a great joke at the end. Oh, okay, okay. You have to get to the very end, but it's got a really, really good joke. It ends on a really sound joke. And that kind of, Tied a tied a bow. Oh, okay, because I did I did enjoy um, just running around honking at people. And yeah, yeah, sure. No, I mean, it's, you know, the sandbox part. Basic, it it's got basic pleasures as well, but it, <laughs> it does have a <laughs> it does have a nice joke. I think before that, I played the Spider Man game, uh, Miles Morales. Oh, I really nice. like the Spider Man games. I don't know why particularly. They just they they're not fussy. I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't really enjoy them. Uh, what about the last film that you watched? The last film i watched was dune i went to the cinema and i saw dune uh, it's very beautiful uh i think the the best thing about it was it was by villeneuve and he has a wonderful command of sort of palette and tone and composition and soundtrack and weird floopy bass noises that he puts over things and big spaceships hanging an inch off the ground i do like the way that he does those in all (laughs) of his films um the worst thing about it was it was dune um like i know the story of dune i've seen dune i don't need to see it again like it kind of did everything that's in dune it didn't do anything that wasn't in dune so by by about the kind of two and a half hour mark i was like yeah i know it's it's actually only half of dune as well i know i know and it's the good half as well because like dune is a book which has a whole bunch of plot and then lots of uses of the word sand for about 100 pages (laughs) that's that's, there's only one word for sand um so that was my my worry was that i enjoyed it but um and then it ended and i was like well my memory from the book was that nothing much really happens for the rest of the book now is Second film could be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, same movie. Maybe they'll try and squish in some of the extra books, but I never even read those because everybody assured me that they were rubbish. So um, I don't know. I, I kind of i I get a bit pissed off by it, really, because it's sort of the world is full of great storytellers and great world builders and fascinating ideas. That why the hell are we recycling something from the seventies, which was okay? 
it wasn't amazing it wasn't yeah. it's not really what very very well made film but like imagine what you could make with that imagine if phil and you have made a, a heaven's vault film right exactly. it would be so yeah, good. Be good this is the real reason <laughs> well i mean it may well be the real reason but it's not it's not that doesn't make it not a valid reason it's still got sand <laughs> yeah. in it There's lots of sand. like it's you know like it's it's just i'm uh, no i, I, I don't I mean villain is a is a phenomenal director as you say it's an amazing sense of color and composition and stuff and and my favorite stuff he does is it's a kind of original well i mean i guess Arrivals are an adaption of a book as well, but um, but at least it's a book that no one had ever heard. Yes, yeah. that's you true. Know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a book that hasn't been made before. It's an inspired choice of a, of a thing to adapt, and, and it also worked better as a film than a novel. I think. Yeah. It much better. Right. I think that's probably true. Um, no, I mean, I I just I get very irritated by this this remake culture we're stuck in because at some point the kids are going to grow up and become the adults, and then they're going to just start remaking the remake of the remake, and like somebody's just got to pay writers actually can we just pay some writers to have some new ideas please like i would appreciate that <laughs> well i mean the, the, i think there are it's the studios i think decide to make these things but um yeah, yeah anyway is that, is that i mean economically i understand yeah. it but it's mm-hmm. still it's still boring yeah um unfortunately uh, and the, what what was the last tv show that you watched or are watching the last tv show i i'm watching a whole bunch of stuff at the moment June. most of which i uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> um but the there's a I, i've been watching various things which are not necessarily very good but the last thing i watched which i really 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 liked was um it's called for all mankind and it's oh, on yeah. apple's tv plus and i haven't heard anyone talk about it and it's like it it so it builds itself as an alternate history where the Russians win the space race. And that's its kind of hook for why this is interesting. But actually, that's not important. What it really is, is it's about it's about being in the space race, but not knowing how it's going to end. Because when we watch a drama about the moon landing, we know that Neil Armstrong lands on the moon and blah, blah, blah. We know the history of it. So by being an alternate history world, every time they land a spaceship in that TV show, we don't know whether they're going to land successfully or not. And so you get the actual tension and drama of what it would have been like in 1969 or whatever, watching these these things. And it's brilliant it's brilliant I, I haven't seen the second season yet i've just finished the first part we, we, it's one of the best both, things i've seen in years we've watched both seasons and yeah season two is also, is also is as good as the first one i think it's it's well, a that's really fantastic great show. And you're right you, you don't see it anywhere no one talks about it but um yeah i couldn't I, I believe it, how, how good it was i, I love yeah it. yeah exactly because i started watching it just as sort of well it's a spacey thing it'll be fine and then by episode three i was like no really i had to get my yeah. i was Saying, saying to my wife, you really have to actually come and watch this because it really is genuinely good. <laughs> um, and then it got the highest accolade that any TV show can have, which is my wife saying, actually, I don't want to watch this. It's too stressful going away. <laughs> <laughs> which is, she's only ever said that before about The Wire, which obviously is the best TV show ever made. So, um, yeah, if I play to her. Um, yeah, so that's really good. And um, so currently watching Foundation, which is also on TV Plus, which is really not very good at all um, i've heard some yeah quite slow people up people were saying that. yeah it well it it's a fascinating thing because it's so expensive like the money just drips off the screen the production values are astonishing but like there's kind of nothing behind the eyes but it's so polished 
yeah, it's kind of fascinating in the way that it doesn't really seem to be working, but it really doesn't work. It's very <laughs> slow and yet somehow jumps massively all the time. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 quite it's quite the grand folly of a of a TV show, and in that sense, I find it compelling. Yeah, because I kind of want to watch it now, based on just there. Yeah, well, it kind of a bit like yeah, it, it's confusing. I, I think it. I think it's like it wants to be game of thrones but it doesn't know what made game of thrones work so it's like somebody's sort of copied the scenes but not actually thought about or, or something like yeah. it's really weird but it's it's definitely not good but it's not bad in the conventional <laughs> sense either and i find that kind of fascinating cool. and uh, <laughs> the very very last thing i always do is a super quick fire either or and uh, i always see there's um no right answer apart from one uh, so I'll start with the first one. I'll go for uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain or Death Trap Dungeon. Uh, neither of them. Um, Death Trap Dungeon, arbitrarily, but they're both not very good. <laughs> Fair enough. What was your favourite one? Creature of Havoc. I don't remember that one. It's one where you start off as an incoherent monster that can't understand it English. And after a while, you learn how to understand the gobbledygook that people that you meet are saying, because it's kind of actually a code. And when you can read it, you can understand one of them explaining how to get through a secret passage that's hidden behind a blank wall on a paragraph that starts with a certain set of text by subtracting seven from the number. And then you go there and you subtract seven from the number and you get into a secret room. But you still can't get out of the maze because actually to get out of the maze, you have to subtract seven from a paragraph which doesn't start with the text that's in that description, but starts with a similar sounding text, at which point the creature has a moment of insight and discovers a secret door where it couldn't even know that there was a secret door because it gains genuine sentiments and then you can escape into the world it's an actual masterpiece that it's sounds incredible that sounds it's genuinely that astonishing very cool i'll need to i'll need to track that one down it's uh it's St- steve jackson because steve jackson's ones are better than ian yeah. livingston's ones. I, I know both of them i know both these guys they're both uh, not friends exactly but at least colleagues of mine but i i'll come out yeah. and say it Steve Jackson's stuff was better than Ian. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, TV or cinema? Uh, cinema, because I'm a parent, so I never get to go to the cinema, so it now feels exotic to me. <laughs> uh, it might be the same answer here then. Fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Actually, I think I'd go with a takeaway because there's less pressure. Okay, so you go see see the film in the cinema and then come home and have to have to take it with you. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, the last one and the important one as far as Tarek's concerned, real book or ebook? Oh, real book. I can't read ebooks. <sighs> so that was the wrong answer. What I find is if I if I like a book, I want to have the book. And if I don't like a book, then I can read the ebook of it. But then I don't like the book. So my <laughs> e-reader a dreadful is... system. That's conditions. <laughs> well, yeah, completely <laughs> logical. It means my bookshelves are full of books that I like, or at least that I might have liked. And my e-reader is full of books that I knew I wasn't going to like, and in fact did okay, not so like. Okay, you're clearly crazy. Your answer doesn't count. We're taking this. So your, your your Kindle is full of June, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, right. No, it is. No, the it's entire full of, June collections. June and Agatha Christie, and like books that say just ninety nine p today. Try this. <laughs> try it, and you go. That wasn't really worth ninety nine p. I'm sorry, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. no, you're 
Oh, well. <laughs> the problem with ebooks is they don't give you enough choices. That's the problem. That's the problem. Right. You can't, it's hard to put, it's hard to hold the pages with all your fingers when you check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. Comes good you before you go back. <laughs> So thanks very much to John there uh, for that. I think we can call him June's number one fan there. <laughs> some 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 fair points though. I mean, I, 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 as we chatted about in the podcast, yeah, we both of us had similar views to June uh, to John. You know, it, it's visually it's, an, it's a gorgeous film. Um, I do feel the plot kind of runs out of steam a little bit after the. You know, maybe the, the at the end of this the climax, part, yeah, like an hour yeah, yeah. to go I, almost. I, I, I mean, I think. It is, you know, I love Villeneuve films, and it, like John was saying, it looks spectacular. The performances mm. are great, and it is a good film. It's, but yeah, it sort of ramps up and then goes down, yeah. and then it suddenly ends. And my memory of the book is that the rest two. of the book is very, is very low for the yeah. book. Like nothing much seems to happen. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see. If they change that up a little bit, or if, what they do with with, the, with uh, film two, and and as he was saying, yeah. you know, it, I mean, this is a common complaint, I suppose, about cinema, and you maybe wouldn't get the sort of budget for a new IP, but mm-hmm. do we have to keep revisiting these things over and over? You know, it's yeah. it, there is a question. You know, I know there was a, there was a I saw on the Amazon Prime. There's a as I was scanning through stuff. There's a James McAvoy film, June film. Did you know that? Children of June. Oh, uh, it's a, a yeah, yeah. It's a TV. Oh, is it a TV um, thing? Right, it's a TV okay. movie yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never watched it. I guess it's meant to be pretty bad. Yeah. But so um, yeah, I know it's one of these books that it's almost it's, it's a seminal work and it was it's huge and it's very difficult. I guess it's a very difficult book to adapt and stuff. But it's almost become like this this kind of challenge this, this, that people want to do. And it and I which I think is great. But I do I would love to see that kind of budget go to yeah original IP. Mm-hmm. You know, but then I suppose the flip side of that is you get stuff like Blade, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which was I thought brilliant, and bombs. Yeah, in, in the cinema, I know. And, it's it's, and that's a difficult with with like audiences don't seem to really click. Although I have to say that you watch stuff like a lot of Nolan stuff, a lot of like Inception, yeah, yeah. Interstellar, big you know big money and uh, kind of original story that they seem to do well. But that, I suppose it is it is rare sci-fi. to get that sort of money. Yeah, you know, yeah. Nolan's I mean, that's his Nolan's name the exception, than, I would say there, and yeah. you know it is good. I, I always caveat this when I have a conversation about June that I did enjoy it, but I, I just, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it with with some reservations. I think. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think that's but, that's fair to say. But anyway, um, thanks very much to John. I found that chat fascinating, and you know, yeah, as uh, interesting in the not only the differences between fiction and interactive fiction, but also the similarities that there are uh, in a lot of ways as well as he was pointing out. So if you haven't yeah. checked out any of his games, you don't need a console or anything. 80 Days is a mobile game. I think you can get overboard on your mobile. Yeah, overboard on your phone as um, well, yeah. They're really worth checking out. They don't take long to play. 80 Days is a is literally a, an interactive novel almost. It's just reading, yeah. and, but it's a yeah. brilliantly written and constructed little thing. So I would definitely recommend checking that out and uh, as john said the heaven's vault books are now available we'll put a link in the podcast bio if you want to buy those for christmas or even after we're definitely at a point now aren't we where what makes a video game a video game is is very very different now than the kind of i think a lot of people have that image of the kind of teenage boy in their parents you know basement playing halo on a headset whatever but it's and that is still 
the so it's still true, but there's so much more to it now than that, you know. And 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 as you say, being able to play an interactive novel on your phone, it's just night and day, and it's it's such a great untapped world out there. And I'm sure John mentioned this about that. It's it's almost like subtitled movies. There's a whole other world of yeah, uh, cinema or storytelling which so many folk don't tap into because they're maybe unaware or a bit nervous of it or just don't mm-hmm. think it will appeal to them and definitely give it a try if you're if you're if you're into good storytelling and interactive dramas etc give it a try it's it's really yeah, fantastic highly recommend it so um next week we have another great guest for you we do indeed next week we're chatting with hugh howie who um is a it was a pretty massive deal his book rule um a few years ago was and, and, and a really interesting story of how he came about you know he wrote this book um independently Put it out bit by bit, and then it kind of grew and grew and grew and became this massive. And actually, turned down uh, traditional release. publishers for a long time. Turned turned down a seven yeah. figure uh, sum for a for for a deal where he had more control. Of, and it was just, so it's a really interesting yeah. chat about how how we navigate those waters for some. Yeah, going the first and we time. chat a lot to him about you know that distinction between self publishing and traditional publishing, and mm-hmm. you know there is definitely a stigma still about self publishing mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, but yeah. Um, Hugh shows that there is a way to become a great success in that. And he's now traditionally published as well as still self-publishing stuff. So, um, you know, there's a way to exist in both worlds. And I don't think one is a lesser, uh, makes you a lesser writer than the other. No, exactly. I think a lot of people think that, isn't Mm -hmm. it? You can't, you're not really a proper author Mm -hmm. if if you've done it. And that's just Mm -hmm. total nonsense. I think if you're, if you write stuff that people like to read, you know, or even if they don't like to read it, if you write stuff, I think you are a writer. Yeah, to me, I think, anyway, that's I think that's works. right, definitely. So, but yeah, um, uh, so it's a, it's a fan- fascinating. Yeah, talk. no, as again, really great guest to have on. So, um, please do tune in for that one. And uh, before we go, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use, and a review would be even better because it really helps us climb the charts, and that helps us to continue to get some great guests. And of course, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so by sending us a Twitter in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear, or an email to uh, podcast at rightgear.co.uk. It's been a while since we had... got uh, the email address, right? (laughs) I don't know why. I think we should have hello. I'm I'm going to say because it's going to confuse people, but um, it's been a while since we had a... They're probably sending us the wrong email address. I keep seeing the wrong email address. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. That's why we've not had any emails for a while. It's It's my fault, yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later. 